Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome in, everyone. This is Lynn Vartan. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1. You're listening to the Apex Hour. Today's event was our annual Faculty Distinguished Lecture, and I am so happy to have in the studio with me Dr. David Lunt, who is our 2020 Faculty Distinguished Lecturer. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Lynn. I'm glad to be here. You've been such a hit, and it is such a joy to be able to have a chance to talk with you more. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for your great topic. Today, we're going to be talking about ancient Greece and the Olympic Games and all of that. So let's start by saying how, well, tell us a little bit about what you do at SDU and the classes that you teach for anyone who might not know. Okay. I'm always happy to talk about teaching classes. So I'm a history professor. I'm in the history department here at SUU. And I teach a lot of different kinds of classes. I've taught a lot of general education classes. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's, this is the first semester I haven't taught the United States History Survey, uh, where that's where I know most of my students. I've had hundreds and hundreds of students. Um, that's not really my area of deep knowledge, but I know enough to teach a, a general education class. And that's, I like it because I meet students from all over campus, Right. Um, usually in their first semester in there. You know, dewy-eyed and excited, and by the end of the semester, they have become hard, <laughs> hard and jaded um, veteran students. Um, jaded individuals. <laughs> yeah, in the best possible way. They just, they just get better at it. And I teach a lot of – I teach a world history class. You and I were chatting about that yeah. earlier. Uh, I teach a class called Western Civilization. It's sort of the, the history of the ideas yeah. behind um, – you know, the, we don't really use that word the West so much anymore, but just ideas behind, you know, modern – oh principles and values. So what is that change, the not using the word the West? We don't love, just as in general as a university, we don't love dividing the world into us against them. Ah, or, okay. You know, these people and those people, right? And that's sort of that, that phrase, and I still use it because that's the phrase I kind of came up with, was Western civilization. And in some ways, I mean, it's kind of true, right? Like something like democracy is a value shared by people all over the world. It doesn't right. matter where you're from or what you do. But it originated, you know, democracy originated in ancient Greece. Right. And so, you know, they consider that to be kind of the West, right? Like West as opposed to the East, which right. is, I guess, everywhere else. Right. Um, but other values kind of connected to that, things like rationalism or um, my favorite, free speech, ah, um, yeah. connected to democracy. Uh-huh. Um, these, you know, these sort of values came out and are, you know, sort of germinate in ancient times. And then, you know, with something like the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and you know, the exploration into the rest of the world by Europe and these ideas spread around and now they're more global values, but they started in the West. And so that's, that's a class. That's a class we talk about. So is that trend to sort of change that terminology? Is that, is that sort of more local? Is that a national thing? Is that an international trend? Oh, I think, so I'm not, I'm not the expert expert on this, but generally I would say it's a national trend to sort of de-emphasize the traditional Western 
narrative, especially if you if you're not careful with that class, it turns into rah rah Europe's the best, right? Right. Which it's not, right? Right. But right. democracy is great, and so is free speech and things, right? So these values are. Um, so that's why oftentimes it's just called European civilization now. I see. Um, I see. And and justifiably and understandably, I think some schools have tried to bolster world history yeah. um, and and non-Western histories and non-Western traditions, which are great. Cool. Um, so so yeah. So those are the general education classes I teach, and mm-hmm. I teach a class. I teach several upper division classes on ancient Greece and history, and I teach a class on uh, ancient sport, sport in ancient Greece and Rome. It's right. similar to what what we talked about today. I teach a class on early Christianity. I teach a class on sport in American society. Wow. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, so it's a lot of fun. Today we talked a little bit about how you got into really studying the, the sports and the Olympics, but um, were you always interested in, in history? Was that something that germinated from a young age? Yeah. It, it's, uh, I get a lot of times students will come in and they'll you know, they sit in the office and they talk about it and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And I feel a little bad because my story is pretty straightforward. I always, you know, I kind of joke about it. I say, well, some people choose what they want to do. In my case, history chose me. Like I never could imagine doing anything else. I tried doing other things. You know, I got, you know, jobs. I mean, I'll just call them jobs, not careers. Yeah. And it just, whatever, you can do that. And I believe people in the world can do that and have great, meaningful, fulfilling right. lives. It just wasn't for me. So, um, but I, how did it choose you? So I was sitting in a class at 15 years old, and I was sitting in a history class, and I remember Mr. Felt, my high school history teacher, wow. giving a class on Islamic expansion and this wandering writer, his name's Ibn Battuta, and he wrote this stuff. And I remember sitting there going, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I'd like to know more. I wonder if you could get a I wonder if there's a job out there where you just get to learn history. And then I was like, well, of course, history teachers. And yeah. Whatever. And here's the great part. So I went to school. You know, I went to graduate from high school. I went to college. I majored in history. And then I went to graduate school. And in graduate school, you know, they sort of introduce you to the profession. And my, you know, I was a teaching assistant. And the professor I worked for, um, Dr. Marrera, she says, hey, I want you to teach one of these lectures, this big lecture hall, old-timey, you know, wooden, rickety yeah. desks. And I said, okay, you know, just one time I was terrified. And she goes, yeah, you're going to teach it on Muslim expansion. Oh, my right? so gosh. So it was the exact same lesson Come that I got in it. And I remember at the time just going, this is it. That's all I ever want to do. And I'll do this until I get tired of it. And that's that's never happened. It's been 30 years now. So. Wow. I want to ask you a lot about teaching and uh, so many things that sure. I want to ask you. But um, just going back to that that young 15-year-old version, we, we, talked, we hit on curiosity a little bit today um, in the little Q&A. And I was wondering, do you think that that curiosity was always a part of who you were? I've thought about this a little. I'd like to think yes, but deep down I suspect no. Really? I think... I think we can cultivate it, okay. or at least it, it's in there maybe, and I didn't know it, and it kind of wakes up. Yeah. Um, and I think it might, and I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but I kind of think someone sometimes you got to wake it up somehow, right? right you got to right. germinate that curiosity, whether it's through an inspiring a piece of music yeah. or art or a, a video, a movie you watch, or something you read, or someone you talk to, or a class you take. Um, it can sort of wake it up and i do think the more you know sort of to 
you know, corrupt what Socrates said. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. Oh, right? so true. And so the more I learn, the more I go, well, I know this, but oh my gosh, there's all these other directions that I don't know enough about. And so I feel like learning is exponential. Like it feeds on itself and curiosity, I kind of think is the same way, but I, I got to learn more about, see, I'm I got to learn more about curiosity. I'm curious. Well, that's really, I mean, that's really interesting. First of all, I love the concept of uh, curiosity kind of exponentially expanding, you know, like, like they say about wealth and this kind of thing. But that's really interesting because I hadn't really thought of it, but I do think that's true. And some people think that, you know, you're either curious or you're not, you know, and so I was curious, I I was curious also (laughs) what you thought. And so, yeah. So do you think that that, comes in is that sort of a cornerstone of your teaching is that awakening curiosity in others because you're you're a darling of the classroom i mean i hear all the time about your classes and how amazing they are so i'm sort of curious about you know how you approach teaching is that what you're trying to do is spark curiosity do you have a concept Um, of that i i would like to it's not a driving force because i don't i don't want to uh, first off thank you for saying those (laughs) kind things um I think, so it's hard for me to put myself in the seat of the students, right? But this is just what I think. I could be wrong. But I think the students go, wow, he really is interested in that. Maybe I should be interested too. Uh-huh. Right? Or he really thinks that's cool. Maybe it is cool. And so I, in that sense, I'd like to help cultivate it. But I feel like, especially this past two or three semesters, and I don't know if it's me getting more comfortable as a teacher or just kids these days but I got, my students are getting more curious oh that's great oh um, cool like, like i have some pretty amazing students and i have had over the years i'm not trying to say anything bad about former ones but the ones i got the last two or three semesters have just been unbelievably mm. interesting as people and curious as students yeah. and it it just makes the class so much better because someone will say this happened maybe two three years ago someone said hey tell us you know there's the winter olympics are going on in in seoul or yeah, in Korea in 2018, and the student said, "Hey, tell us about the tell us about the Winter Olympics. Where'd those come from?" Yeah, and it was a class, you know, where it was an appropriate segue. So we kind of canceled what we were planning to do that week, and we talked about the Olympics and this bigger scheme of of world history, and it worked really well. And I would have never thought the students would be interested in that. I'm super interested in the Olympics, but I didn't know they were and, huh. until they started asking. And so, um. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I, w- I want my students to be curious, and maybe maybe I could be more deliberate about evoking that. Well, it, I don't think you need to because everything you're doing is right. I, from what I hear, you know, I I want to sit in on one of your classes, but it sounds also like you you think a little bit about maybe subconsciously about modeling, and you're you're just excited and curious, and then you want to share it. Is would that be an accurate description? I, absolutely. Like I routine. I mean, not every day, but routinely, I'll go. I cannot believe this is my job to get up and t- and help these students encounter these these stories, right? These unbelievable people and events from history. And maybe they are unbelievable that like, we shouldn't believe them all, but <laughs> we can at least talk about why we should or should not. But um they're just so compelling to me and and riveting and and I get to read and write about these things and talk about these things cool. um, for a job. Like I feel so lucky. 
That's amazing. Well, that's a great place to have our first little musical break. Um, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about um, the Olympics and ancient Olympics and all of those kinds of things and get maybe some more stories out of Dr. Lunt uh, from his research. But um, first, I have some music to play for you. So, you know, I tried to find something um, and I found some odd lute music and I have a, a wedding processional from Thessaly. And that's, I don't know if I'm saying, am I saying, saying that? It right. Okay. So Thessaly is a, a, a region in Greece, right? And, um, it, it, it's in the Odyssey, I think. Thessaly is. Sure. It's mentioned you know. in ancient sources all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's known for its horses and big wide open plains. Oh, cool. So this is a wedding processional from Thessaly. It's a, it's an interesting and unusual kind of world music example. And the artist is Stelios and Katsianis. Um, so that's K-A-T-S-I-A-N-I-S. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU, Thunder 91.1.
Okay, welcome back to the Apex Hour. So that song was a wedding procession from Thessaly. And um, I think originally these are sort of like modern lute. That instrument wasn't the lute. Um, we were talking about the kind of instrument that is. So welcome back, Dr. Lunt. Thank you. Um, tell me about that instrument that you heard. I would say it's like like an oud, but there's a Greek equivalent of it. Yeah, there's, there's a few different ones. And I'm not a musician, but I appreciate music. But it sounds like a bazooki to me. Ah. It's a stringed instrument that they play, and and I love to hear. Yeah, it sound, It looks very similar, and I'm sure there's a lot of um, similarities. I mean, we find that in world music a lot, that there's a lot of instruments. I mean, you see it in Asia a lot as well, that they have different versions of a similar instrument. So This is anyway. hy- hypnotic music, so I know a lady who was a study abroad student, not at SUU, in case anyone's worried, uh, <laughs> who went to Greece on a study abroad, Met a bazooki player in a taverna, right? Like a, it sounds like a tavern, but it's not like an alcoholist. It's just like a restaurant, right? right? And uh, she fell in love with him and didn't go home. Oh. I mean, she eventually went home, and, you know, <laughs> but now she lives there and has two kids and study abroad gone right, I guess. Yeah, but that happens. I mean, and Greece in particular is very alluring. I mean, I've been, and I know you've been, what, how many times? I I, I know it sounds pretentious, but, but you I've, can't I can't count. remember. It's nine or 10 or 11, something <laughs> wow, like Wow, that's this. amazing. And tell me about your type of travel, because I think you've done some, even early on, some archaeological stuff there, and then, and of course, now research trips. So what's a typical Grecian travel vacation <laughs> so a Greek trip for me is um so there's, there's a few different kinds i've taken students before and that's it's fun but it's a lot of work um it's rewarding because you see the students super nervous when they arrive often you know it's their first time going somewhere and it's difficult because the language many signs are written in english as well but greek is a strange alphabet to right. people if you go to france or something you go well i can sound out yes. the words yeah. at least right mm-hmm. but greek is is uh is tough to read right off the bat and then by the end of the trip the students are feeling confident and know you know a little bit better what to go on uh, and that's a lot of planning and a lot of explaining things that that i take for granted but things like oh here's how you buy a, a ticket on the subway or this is the the way Greeks drink coffee is different from the way you are going to probably want right. your coffee. Right, right. Um, because the Greeks love, they'll have about a two-inch sludge of coffee grounds in yes, the bottom of yes. it. Which you're welcome to drink if you want, but it's pretty gross, right? So. I know that because it's similar. We were just talking about that I'm Armenian. It's similar to Armenian coffee. I don't know if the Greeks read the coffee grounds, but the Armenians read the coffee grounds. Oh. It's so thick at the bottom. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes sense because so Greece was, you know, Occupied, I guess I'll say, by the by Turks for right. four hundred years, right? And that left a big mark. And Greece and Turkey are still sorting out their feelings about this, <laughs> yes. but um, for several hundred years. And so things like the bazooki and the style of coffee, and yeah. even the way that they dress, uh, have you know strong connections to that other part mm-hmm. of you know Anatolia. I guess we'll say Eastern yeah. Turkey. So, do you have some favorite? Uh, things about Greece, like apart from the historical thing, like do you have a favorite food that you've had there? Do you have a favorite, any of those? Oh, kinds? all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, so that's the student travel. When I go by myself, I'm, I'm often in a, there's a couple of libraries I go to, ah. um, which is nerdy, but these libraries are unbelievable, right? They're old buildings oh. and you feel like you're stepping back in time. That's and, the best. You know, thumbing through these books, they're all dusty pages. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, archeological site to go and visit them. And there's, um, a few things I love to eat and, and drink or see in Greece. Um, 
one thing I love is a is a pastry called a bugatza. Okay. And I, Greek pastries aren't the best in the world, probably. I'm not an epic. I don't understand how the great <laughs> gourmand. You're not um, a foodie. Taste. No, not really. <laughs> um, but I do love a good bugatza. Okay. Um, and these are just some kind of a puff pastry with cream in the middle, but somehow on a hot day, oh. they are so good. And often places won't have them. So that's one of the things I like to do is just go to a a, a, a kind of quiet spot and just sit and read. Amazing. And, and you know, eat, eat a snack like this. Uh, Greek food's great though, right? I love, uh, it's called saganaki. It's fried cheese. Who doesn't love fried cheese? Right. Can't right? go wrong or, with that. They got this, it's great. Um, there's an old Saturday Night Live skit about the great big bean or something like this, where they said, why eat a hundred of little beans when you can have one big bean? Yeah. <laughs> and they have these, these beans in Greece, they call them gigantics, gigantes, right? Uh-huh. And it, they are just big, great big beans. They're not huge beans, but about the size of your thumb. Wow. And they're good. I don't know. I like yeah. them. Uh, you know, so yeah, they have great food and I, I love, I love listening to the bazooki music yeah. and just pretending I'm Greek for a minute, even though I don't, I don't know modern Greek. I, I know uh, ancient Greek, uh, and they're quite different. Yeah. So I'm trying to learn modern Greek, but I'm busy. Yeah, I'm of busy. course. Well, I'd love to talk about some of your research and the games. And I was reading a, a, a blog on the SU site that was written about the things you don't know about the Olympic Games. And, mm-hmm. and you covered a couple of them in your talk today, uh, but I'd love to ask about some of the others. Sure. So the, the first one is that athletes competed naked, which you talked about in, in class and, and in the talk today. And I think I didn't even know that. That's just fascinating. And I was wondering, um, I've heard of this tradition of running barefoot. Is that is that related at all to the early marathons? Probably not in the sense of, um, so the Greeks would run barefoot in their gymnasium, but the ground had been carefully prepared. I see. So they're, they're watering it and they got special dirt they bring in. It's supposed to be soft. Yeah. That's not how they look. If you if you were there today, you saw some photographs. You know, today they just they're not competing in them, right? right so they don't right. keep them all nice and fancy. But there's special dirt that they like to use. Um, but yeah, they would compete naked, and um, it's it's just they they rub olive oil all over themselves. Oh, um, and there's various explanations. Some people think it makes their muscles more supple. Wow. Other people think it's some kind of crazy suntan strategy. <laughs> I've so I haven't done it naked, but I've gone for a run before and doused myself with olive oil. It was uncomfortable. Oh. It's not my thing. Uh, just to see. Uh, I don't know. We don't know why. There's people have, you know, there's one I'm thinking of in particular, one scholar who said, oh, it's a ritual. It's like you anoint something it, uh, way out there in left field. I, we just don't know. That's amazing. But you read, you know, these people are competing naked. And I think, you know, we have these sort of Western or modern sensibilities about nudity um, for better, or for worse, right. some hangups about it as right. a culture. The Greeks don't have these, right? Right. at least not for men. Um, they do have a strong, developed sense of of shame, and that you should cover up, you know, certain private parts at certain right. times. And women are kept you know, right. fairly sequestered, ideally for them, right? Um, so you know, I'm not acting. They're not like it's not some kind of crazy free for all, full yeah. of nudists. But these people are out there exercising naked, and I remember kind of rock bottom. I was reading, I've read at least two articles about 
um, athletic supporters for Greeks. They're like, well, they're naked, but they're using something to help keep their body parts. <laughs> and I thought, I don't need to read this no, anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm interested. Maybe my curiosity ran out right yeah, there. That was like, it. I'm not a prude, but I also just... That was uh, your cap. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's the direction I need to go with Right, this, right. But. Well, one of the other things was that there was no Olympic torch. I did not know that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, the Olympic torch is a modern phenomenon, but it is an, uh, what would I say, an interpretation of an ancient um, practice. So ancient Greeks, especially Athenians, loved torch races, which I think are pretty cool. I would love to see one. Um, Do you, you mean like a relay? Exactly. Oh, okay. It's a relay race, and they had these teams of, you know, they're probably young men or, or old boys, um, and they would train, and there's a special group the the torch racers as a relay and it would be two or three miles probably well maybe a couple miles we'll say and you would run with this torch and then hand it off to your teammate and you know other people are running with their teammates against you but if your torch goes out you lose or you can't win anyway oh which is that's not the way we do the torch no today right and so the torch as a modern olympic phenomenon was developed as you know, all sorts of sort of interesting quirks of history by Nazi Germany. Really? For the 1936 Olympics, the Nazis who liked fire, it's a symbol of fascism and strength and destruction. They decided to get flame from Olympia, and they still do this today for the modern Olympics. They will, and this is all completely invented tradition, right? But yeah. it's still pretty fun. I've seen this. It's pretty spectacular. They focus the rays of the sun. They they get a, a, a good-looking woman actor to pretend to be a priestess. Oh, my god! she gosh. wears this ancient Greek-style um, outfit, right, this dress, and she holds this con, whatever, mirror, con, I guess it's convex or whatever, yeah. to focus the rays of the sun onto this burnt, you know, this little piece of kindling, and they light the torch using the sun at Olympia. And then they hand it off to people and it makes its way to the site of the of the Olympic Games. And this sort of handing it off as a processional relay, and this is not the way a, an ancient torch race would have run. That's for speed and you want to defeat your opponent. Today it's more like, you know, the Olympics are coming and think about it. It often has sponsorship connections. Oh my but, gosh. But there is one little hint of ancient of ancient tradition there that I like to think of. So after the Persians invaded Greece, and this is in 480 BC and from 480 to 479, the, the Persians are defeated and it's, it's a, it's an outstanding victory. It's like the one time the Greeks worked together and they fought off these, you know, hordes of barbarians and it's what they called them. Um, I'm sure the Persians were nice, but <laughs> they fought them off. But the afterwards, there was this feeling that the, this, the country has been made impure by this big war. Oh. And so the word came out from the Delphic Oracle, right? It's supposed to be Apollo. It said, right. put out all your fires, every all the fires in the country that the Persians had you know, invaded or been fighting, and they were going to rekindle them all using fire from Apollo, from Delphi. Oh. And they sent a runner, and he got a new piece of, you know, new fire, like a flame on a torch, and he ran it back. It's something like, I can't remember. It's over a hundred miles in one day there and back. Wow. Um, you know, in a couple of days probably, and maybe it's been exaggerated. It was a great yeah. story, right? And then from that fire, you know, they could light other people's fires and spread it. And so it's a symbol of purification. Oh um, my God. So there's a little bit of that. There's a runner in there, but no, the modern Olympic torch is not really an ancient tradition at all. 
That is a fantastic, oh my gosh, I'm so happy that I I heard all of that. I had no idea. That's just such an amazing story. Thank you. You're welcome. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was that the Greeks thought winning could lead to immortality. And I was curious about how that all worked. Uh, Right. So for the Greeks, winning is the greatest thing. They want to win. And when you win, you get enormous amounts. It depends on what you win, right? If you win, like me, you're going to win, you know, you might win the high score on your video game console at home, right? Right, right. But imagine you win these great victories, especially in athletics. And especially it seems to be in athletics where you had to show immense force and power, like boxing or wrestling. Um, You know, this other sport, Pancration, which is kind of like boxing and wrestling mixed together. Oh. If you won enough victories, you got enormous amounts of glory and the greek word for glory is kleos right you got this kleos that was your sort of calling card for being a great person you wanted kleos is connected to the word to hear like to hear like to listen oh really and so essentially it's like your reputation people are hearing about you right they're on twitter and facebook and you know the news and all this espn highlights this have people talking oh my gosh you would not believe what so-and-so managed to accomplish right and so this reputation would go, and for the Greeks, the next life is a pretty dismal proposition. Really? Right? Like we read about in something like the Odyssey. Yeah. Where Achille, uh, Odysseus goes to the underworld and he runs into Achilles who's died, right? And he goes, well, what's it like? How's the underworld? And Achilles like, it's the worst. It's <laughs> terrible. I'd rather be the lowliest slave alive than the king of the dead. Oh. So for the Greeks... The here and the now was the time for you to make your reputation, for you to get some kind of legacy that could live on. And so if you amassed enough chaos and the dynamics of how this exactly happened, I mean, I've I've poked around at it, I've written a paper too. Um, Plenty of people have. How, who decides when, where. At any rate, a few of these athletes, after they died, people worshiped them. They would pray to them. They would offer sacrifices and pour libations and give offerings and little boxes. The understanding is, for the Greeks, it's not just commemoration like, wow, wasn't that guy great? You pray as a quid pro quo, right? You are giving something, and if or more likely, they'll give you something, and then you will make good on your promise, right? Like, you give me, you know, heal my sister's terrible condition— and I will offer you three goats or whatever, yeah. right? And they're praying to these athletes for the the only reason that makes them so exceptional is these amazing athletic victories. So these names, you know, there's like Theogonies, is a great athlete, lived on the island of Thassos, and a statue of him, and people worshipped it for over 500 years. No right? kidding. We have archaeological evidence for hundreds of years later, people were still stopping by, putting in a coin or saying, you know, we don't know what they were saying, but presumably saying a prayer to this great athlete who had been such a great um, pancratiast and wrestler in his lifetime that after he died, he he gained these immortal honors. So um, he has the ability in theory to continue to influence life on earth. So that's oh immortality my, for the Greeks. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And I'm, I'm thrilled to know about that. Yeah, it's a, a certain kind of, I mean, it's beyond celebrity. It's, it's godlike. Exactly. I didn't realize that. Supernatural. So that story of Theogony's, is unbelievable. I mean, literally unbelievable, but it's a great story. So one night, the story goes, after he died, he still had an enemy in town. That, you know, this guy's a great big Olympic champion fighter, right? So this enemy would come and take a whip and hit 
the statue of Theagonies, like as if finally I can get even with you. But one night the statue falls over on this guy and crushes him and kills him. So the people put the statue on trial for murder. No way. They found it guilty. And there's other precedent for this. You know, like, there's a whole article on this called Murderous Statues. No So, way. of course, the statue's guilty. Not much of a defense there. Right. They throw it in the ocean. And then, of course, terrible things begin happening to the city, right? The famine comes and plague. And the people are like, oh, no, what do we do? And they inquire the oracle. And the oracle basically, you know, a couple of inquiries. And the oracle says, you need to get Theogonies back. And so, you know, fortunately, and this is the story, right? These fishermen, they get their neck <laughs> caught on the statue and drag it up. And they clean it up really nicely and put it back in the in the town, in the town square in the middle um, of the public area. And everything, you know, all the bad stuff goes away and the good times are back. So that's is, fantastic. That's the story. I, that's a fantastic story. Thank you so much. That's a perfect time for another musical uh, interlude here. So this, <laughs> that I still can't get over the story. This next song that I have for you is titled Hades. Um, and then in parentheses, it says Pluto. And the artist is a, a guitar artist that I uh, played actually last week also that I'm really into right now. Um, Taimon and, and her, it's spelled T-A-I-M-A-N-E. And this song is called Hades. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
Well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is KSU Youth under 91.1. I am Lynn Vartan, and I'm in the studio with Dr. David Lunt. Welcome back. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> and that song that you heard um, was called Hades, and in parentheses it says Pluto. The artist is Taiman, T-A-I-M-A-N-E, a great guitar uh, uh, artist. And that other instrument that you heard is one of my favorites. We were chatting about it while it was playing. That's a cajon or a box drum uh, that you basically sit on and play, and it comes from drawers that got pulled out of a dresser. And um, you heard a lot in flamenco music, Spanish music, Portuguese music, and so... Anyway, it was in that song. But we are here to talk about Greek sports and the Olympics. And I think um, many people don't know what, I mean, we have so many events now and adding adding events all the time. I want to know what were the original events? And I also kind of want to know you with your expertise, what do you think about all these adding of new events? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is tell, Talk to me about the events. Yeah, let's talk about Olympic events. So the original Olympics, right? The ancient Olympic Games in Olympia, Greece, traditionally began in 776 BC, although okay. that's one of those dates that archaeology has a different approach. But either way, they began a long time ago, probably closer to 700 BC. Okay. And the original games or festival, I mean, it was a big sacrifice to Zeus, and they have a procession and probably some kind of solemn prayer and stuff. Um, and the games weren't really games. It was one event. They did the, a race. Oh. A, the length of a stadium, which uh, is about, you know, 200 yards. Right. And that was it. For several Olympiads or several festivals, they would just do that one time. And the, the story goes, whoever won that race received the right to light the sacrificial altar. Oh. So, and then that got popular, the watch and the runners. And over time, the organizer said, well, that was cool. It's Let's do more, and it honors the gods, and people like it, and and you know there's all sorts of reasons, and so they started adding more. So they added another race, right? The one that goes down and back, or distance race, or they started doing what we call you know the heavy events or the combat sports like boxing um, and wrestling. Boxing's a little different than what we have. Yeah, I they was wore wondering. they wore protection at some point later. They started wearing more protection on their hands, but not to pad the blows, but to make the blows hit harder oh my god right so especially like in the roman time they would put like pieces of broken glass oh or rocks. yeah like that's not what boxing gloves are intended for that's a good example of when we think something is just like ancient times but not at all oh wrestling was whoever could throw their opponent um like you had to throw the opponent three times right oh okay so or two out of three i guess so yeah um it's not, it wasn't just time. They don't have a way of keeping time, right? They don't have rounds and stuff right. like this. So you had to fight or wrestle, you know, till, till it ended, till someone gave up or someone got, you know, pushed to the ground or, or whatever. Um, we had the pentathlon, which includes throwing the javelin and the discus. There was no javelin all by itself. Yeah, I was wondering. There's no discus all by itself. Yeah. There's no long jump all by itself. Those are just part of the pentathlon. Now, other places in Greece did have those sports or those events independently on occasion, um, but not at the games, not at the Olympian games or the other big festivals. And the discus, so the javelin makes sense from like a military yeah. thing, but the discus, was that an item that was used or was it made up for the game? Yeah, exactly. That's a great question that, that historians have poked around at a little bit because there's a, a, people have suggested that, you know, athletic activity and, you know, sort of came out of training for war. Um, because you have to, you know, throw the spear or whatever. Right. 
But more and more, I think philosophically, we say they're, they're really different. I mean, yeah, you do want to defeat your opponent, but running really fast is not a super important. <laughs> it's for not a war. weapon. Running away. I mean, that's my move, right? Yeah. <laughs> but running away is not what you need to do. Or, or some of these other things are really artificial, right? right. Like jumping far. Right. And the discus is similar, right? Like the discus probably emerges just out of, hey, how far do you think I can throw that rock? Uh-huh. All right. And eventually they standardize. And by standardize, you know, they would say everybody throw the same rock. Yes. Or right. whatever. But um, to connect it to ath- to warfare in anything other than the sort of most basic sense is, is probably overstating it. But sure, young people grow up. Exercise is an important part of physical fitness, which is important for fighting. Um, and it, it also taught young people to be good citizens. They would spend time with the other young men their age. Um, and, you know, presumably someday they'd grow up and you know, be more friendly or be involved in politics or whatever. So there are connections there. But, uh, yeah, the discus is part of the pentathlon. And there was also running and wrestling to make up the five. So discus, javelin, um, long jump, uh-huh. and then – um, running and wrestling. And so that's the pentathlon. Uh, you have to be a good all-around athlete to to do well. They also have uh, a horse racing, equestrian events. We have equestrian stuff in the Olympics today, but it's more like dressage with yes, the, yeah. know, the, the horses doing the cool tricks and, yeah. and uh, jumping over fences and stuff. These are, in, in the Greek world, it's just speed, oh. right? Like let's, let's go fast. And they had a horse racing track and presumably they're gambling like crazy on these events. Right, I'm which, sure. I mean, that sounds kind of fun to me, right? Like, yeah. Go to the Olympics, like, you know, Las Vegas or something, right? right? Put some right. money on your favorite Who's going to win? Right. Um, but they had chariot racing, and then and they would they would introduce events, and if they weren't working very well, they would end them. So for a while, they had a race with a mule pulling a cart. Oh. And um, I, I would love to know more about this because, you know, these donkey carts, or sometimes it's a mule, there's a different, they're different. Yeah. Um, some of these animals are really hard to control, right? And train. <laughs> I mean, I've I've worked. A, I've been on a donkey before, and I couldn't steer this thing, right? Right. right. Uh, the same kind of idea. I wonder if it was more comic, but yeah. we don't know. They that didn't last very long, right? Um, but the horse racing events is the one. I mentioned this in the talk that women are allowed to have some role because it's the owner who right. is seen as being the participant, not the person driving the chariot or riding the horse. And so women who were absent, they're not allowed to attend or watch, they could still participate. And we have a few names of women who were victorious, who yeah. won championships as owners of fast horses. Well, those sound like great stories. And kind of cool you know. stuff, yeah. And so, okay. And, and then there were also musical events in one area. Yeah, we have musical events in, uh, especially at the, it's called the Pythian Games mm-hmm. at Delphi. So um, there are four places where these crown games are, are contested. And Olympia is the big one, where the mm-hmm. Olympic or Olympian Games, Delphi, um, the seat of Apollo, right, where the oracle right. was, and that those are called the Pythian Games. Um, Isthmia and Nemea are the other two. Right. Um, but yeah, they had musical events at Delphi that were a major part, in some cases, the original, or at least the showcase featured component of the competition. You get up and there'd be singing competition. There was, um, it's called the Aulos, and it's, Often translated as a flute, but it's more like a woodwind. Like right, a, it's, it's a, a reed. A reed, yeah. So and probably loud and obnoxious. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, but it, it was supposed to have a haunting quality to uh, it. interesting. I don't know okay. what that means. Like oh, an oboe. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Um, but 
it was here's what I think is kind of they had a double one where you would have two reeds in your I've, mouth. Yes, yes, yeah. And you're both your hands going. You can't see me. I'm in the radio yeah. studio holding up two hands <laughs> and singing. You would play a little, and I presume pull it away from your mouth and sing, sing. a little, and then put it back in your mouth. And um, and they had the it's called the kathara. It's this like kind of harp or lyre like instrument. So you know, pretty robust musical program um, to go along with the things that we would call athletic. And the word in Greek for for a prize is an athlon. And so athletics is anything you do f- with a prize with at the, the end. Prize. So in this sense, we can call music athletic contests. Absolutely correct to call them that in a Greek context. Yeah, fascinating. So what do you think now? Now there's so many. Are you a fan of the adding of all of them? Or do you think there's a limit? Tell me what your thoughts no, are. I, I don't know if I'm a fan or not fan. I mean, I like watching the Olympics. I'm part of the part of the millions of spectators. Um, there is a process that modern Olympic sports and sports federations go through to get their sport approved to be an Olympic sport. It has to be an exhibition sport. And sports sometimes are taken out and reintroduced. Golf went away and it's back. And uh, baseball, I think, is gone as of right now, right. but mm-hmm. it was there for a while. Um, golf is one of the early sports in the Olympics where women were allowed and then, you know, sort of in and out on things. Um, my, I don't know if I, I'm not griping because I'm just watching on TV. It's not like I'm paying for this. But one of my things that makes me scratch my head is um, it's supposed to be, in theory, that modern Olympic Games are supposed to be for everybody, right? For as many countries as we can get to participate. And so, in, in a sense, this is one of the reasons why the Olympic Winter Games or the Winter Olympics aren't as popular. There aren't as many countries that have lots of snow. Right. And even countries that do have lots of snow, I don't know very many people who grew up losing. Right. 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 Which still looks kind of <laughs> awesome and death-defying. But yes. It's, t- it's not as much access. Everybody grows up running. Right. Right. At least, at, you know, recess when mm-hmm. you're nine mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of like, well, is it really accessible to people? And the Olympics do claim that this is an important feature, but it also matters for television. Yeah. One of the more recent sports, and by recent, I mean, I'm getting old, but we'll say the last 20 to 30 years, one of the big new sports is beach volleyball. Right. Right. Which I guess lots of places have beaches. But one of the reasons this is kind of fast-tracked in the Olympic program was because it's great on television. It's fun to watch. It's great. When lots of us have played a little volleyball, we can relate. But these are, you know, outstanding athletes. And, you know, they're people, they're typically young people wearing revealing clothing, right? (laughs) And, I mean, it's scandalous. So in the early, this isn't the case anymore, but in the early days of beach volleyball, women volleyball players had limits on the amount of clothing they were allowed to wear like there were no maximums way. not minimums conceivably they could have showed up wearing nothing right i mean uh, that would uh, cause other problems but but they were told no no no, your swimsuit or well, i don't know if they're wearing swimsuits much. but whatever you can't cover up too much oh and that's changed gosh. that's not the case anymore this is like this is like the 1980s and 90s wow right and I so had no idea yeah there's a lot sort of a lot of you know sex appeal and sexism and this sort of you know, erotic component of sport that that is uncomfortable, but also drives eyeballs and, and sponsorship dollars and ratings. And, and it's just this big sort of complicated mess. But yeah, like beach volleyball is one of these like, oh, it's an Olympic sport. It's like, well, it is, but it's also a really important television revenue sport. Oh, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective. That's 
amazing and crazy? shocking. Oh my gosh. Well, we have one more song. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. We have one more song to play. Um, and this is by an artist called Kais Asar. Um, so Q-A-I-S and last name Asar, E-S-S-A-R. I've played him before. Um, I just think he's a, a, a great um, uh, world music player who's doing some crossover things and this song is called night flight with sing singed wings so you're listening to the apex hour ksuu thunder 91.1 
Well, that's just the tail end of that song. Uh, and I'll tell you again what that song is. Welcome back to the Apex Hour, KSU Thunder 91.1. That song was Night Flight with Singed Wings, and the artist is Caius Esar. Um, all of this music, by the way, is on, um, S- if you want to go on the web, um, seu.edu slash Apex. Right there on the on the front page of the site is a, a Played on Apex Hour Spotify playlist. And so after each week, I just dump the songs that I play into that playlist. So if you're interested in the music and want to hear more, you it's a completely open playlist that you can check out and it's called Played on Apex Hour and it's linked there on seu.edu slash apex. We also want to welcome back Dr. David Lund. Thank you for being here. And we want to tell everyone about the book that's coming out. So a lot of your research is coming out really soon in a book and tell us when and what and how to find it. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, so I have a, a book deal, I guess a contract uh, and a manuscript with uh, the University of Arkansas Press. And the book is called The Crown Games of Ancient Greece. And it's about some of these stories we've been telling and talking about this uh, idea of there are four big games, the, you know, the Olympic Games, but also the Nemean, the Isthmian and the Pythian Games in ancient Greece and how those happened and what the archaeology looks like and what their role was in ancient Greek society. So so I'm in sort of the advanced stages. I've been through, you know, I've had some referees look it over and approve it. And I'm, I'm just working with the editor to get the things like the index done and the, you know, making decisions about the the formatting of the bibliography and stuff like this, right? But, um, you know, a little more editing and stuff, but I'm hoping it gets out later this year, All 2020. Right. That depends on the publisher, I suppose. Well, we'll be on the lookout for it. I'm sure that we'll have some press at SEU. And I'm sure if anybody searches your name, they'll be able to find it. So yeah. thanks for telling us. Yeah, look around for it, the crown games of ancient Greece. Awesome. My last question is the question that I ask everyone. Uh, and it's just about what's turning you on this week. And so um, it could be anything. It could be a book, movie, TV, whatever you want. It's just kind of a fun question for our listeners. So Dave Lunt, what is turning you on this week? Well, Ever since the season finale of Temptation Island wrapped up, what? I'm, no, I have nothing to say now. I did watch all the Temptation Islands. It's you great did? stuff. Oh yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Watch it with my friends um, in my neighborhood and I my love wife. That. Do you really? Yes. Totally. Um, yeah, I feel a little. Uh, dirty is the wrong word. I just feel a little guilty, right? Like these people are pretty interesting. But... I love it. Oh my gosh, I've I've seen it because it comes up in my queue for other. Like totally, you know, nasty—not nasty, but playful things that I like to watch. And I've always been curious about it. I had no it's idea. It's great. It's tons of fun. Um, look up Rick. He's my favorite. He's oh my smart. God. He's the voice of reason. Okay. So, but it's over now, and so I'm I'm a little bummed. I don't have a show, a go-to show right now. So, what's turning me on is a little more nerdy. Um, there's an ongoing historians' debate about a big project. Um, it's called the 1619 Project. It came out over the summer, August. With the New York Times Magazine, it's awesome. This idea of uh, 1619, you know, last year, 400 years anniversary of of when African Americans came to the colonies that became the United States, right? So sometimes marked as the birth of American slavery. But there, and it's this big project with essays, and it's really well done and interesting. But there are these historians at other universities. You know, there's a, there's a big one, at, a guy at Princeton, and some other places who said, "Well, some of these, some of these." details are not quite as accurate. And so they're arguing back and forth in New York Times and an essay came out uh, yesterday on the Atlantic website, um, sort of laying out another one of these positions in this back and forth. And and I don't care where people fall on that spectrum. Everybody agrees the 1619 Project is a great idea. Yeah. We should talk about this sort of 
you know, legacy and consequences of slavery. Right. But I do love seeing historians be historians and argue about facts matter and, and, uh, you know, depending on the interpretation and, and, you know, why this matters for our world today. So, like I said, check it out if you get a chance because the debate matters less than just the fact that people are talking about history. Uh, in the newspaper today, it makes me happy to cool. see that I'm not completely a dinosaur quite yet. <laughs> that's awesome. 1619 and the article in the Atlantic that came out today. So that's amazing. We'll totally check it out. Yeah. Thank you. And Temptation Island. And Temptation Island. Watch. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.